And that's kind of how it is with becoming a Christian, isn't it? When we come to Christ, the kingdom of God becomes our new home. But the kingdom of this world doesn't leave our hearts so easily, does it? The great challenge for the Christian is to overcome these divided loyalties and identify fully with being a kingdom dweller. And our last beatitude is a big challenge to our loyalty. Look with me at verse 10 in chapter 5 of Matthew. Jesus there says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Please pray with me. Father God, I pray that you will send your spirit to preach through me to your people. Help these words be ones that you have ordained for your people and change us just as I have been challenged and changed this week in studying them. I pray that that the flock will be challenged and changed as well. But it's only through your spirit, only through your power. And that's what we pray for. In Jesus' name, amen. As you remember, the Beatitudes are descriptions of believers, right? That's what we've been saying all along in the Beatitudes. They're, they're descriptions of who we are. Descriptions of people who have been moved from the kingdom of man to the kingdom of God. From this world and its kingdom and its loyalties to the new kingdom, the kingdom of God. And the challenge there is that our heart doesn't move with us as fast as our spirit does, does it? Its loyalties remain to this world in one way or another. Just like when you move from state to state or or some of you move country to country, there are some lingering loyalties that remain. I remember when I moved here almost 17 years ago now, it took me years Literally years to get used to Maine. To loosen some of my loyalties to my previous home. To begin to grow in my loyalty to Maine. It took me years. But I imagine, I imagine if I moved here and I was persecuted for moving here, it would be even harder, wouldn't it? What a challenge that would be for me to remain. And that, in this last beatitude, Jesus is telling us that when you move to the new kingdom, when you move to the kingdom of God, when God saves you and transplants you into his new kingdom, you will be persecuted for it. And that's a great challenge. And you're not persecuted because of your location but because of who you are. You will be persecuted because of who you are. That's what Jesus is saying in this final beatitude. 
Jesus says, Blessed are you who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, and there is the challenge of persecution. Citizens of God's kingdom are persecuted for their loyalty. Members of God's kingdom experience difficulty in this life because of their faith. Persecution is, if you will, the mantle of a believer. Persecution is the mantle of a kingdom dweller. Now, a mantle is is a, a thing in our house over the fireplace. That's how we typically understand it, but but it really comes from from Old English, where it was a cloak that one wore to warm oneself. And it has come into the English language to mean responsibility. If you have the mantle of something, you have the responsibility for something. We see this this used in 2 Kings 2, when the great prophet Elijah's ministry is coming to an end. And he takes Elisha, his disciple, out with him into the desert, if you remember this story. And they, they cross this river. He, Elijah, Elijah takes off his, his robe, his mantle, and strikes the river. And the river parts, and they walk across on dry land, and they get to the other side. And Elijah is taken up in the fiery chariot. You remember that? And, and as he's leaving, his robe, his cloak falls off. And Elijah picks up the cloak, the mantle, Elijah's mantle, and returns to the people. And the people, one of the ways that the people know that Elisha is Elijah's disciple, his, his, the person who's going to continue the work of Elijah, is because he has the mantle. He has Elijah's mantle. He has Elijah's cloak on. Elijah picks it up and continues Elijah's powerful ministry. And the mantle is the object that shows that. It is the the marker for that. And that is what Jesus expects his disciples to do, to pick up his mantle. To continue his work. That's the point of the Great Commission. Go out and preach the good news. That's what Jesus is encouraging Peter to do when he three times reinstates him, if you remember that at the end of the book of John. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Continue my ministry, he's telling Peter. That's what Paul means when he writes in various places in his letters to put on Christ. As we pick up Christ's mantle, some of Jesus' ministry is actually well-received by us. As we, we begin to do his ministry, some of his ministry is well-received, isn't it? Helping the poor and disenfranchised among us, that's well-received. Fighting for injustice, that's what, usually well-received. Protecting the weak, that's usually well-received. But some of Jesus' mantle, some of Jesus' ministry, what he calls us to do, is not so well received. He tells us many different places to continue his ministry of sharing the good news, sharing the gospel, sharing our faith. But 2 Corinthians 2 tells us that when we share that, sometimes people will receive that as a sweet fragrance. 
But sometimes it'll be received as the odor of death to people. And they won't like it. We're to receive, we're to continue Jesus' work, pick up his mantle as one of, of being truth tellers as well. Right? Jesus described himself as the embodiment of truth in John chapter 14, verse 6, didn't he? I am the truth, he said. And that is our mantle as well. A little later on in this chapter, this very chapter in, in Matthew, Jesus is going to tell his disciples that he's speaking to on this Sermon on the Mount to let your yes be yes and your no be no. He is saying, be truth tellers. Tell the truth. And when we pick up the mantle of being truth tellers, there will necessarily be persecution. There's a saying, better to get hurt by the truth than comforted with a lie. That's true, but you notice the truth hurts sometimes. And then there's the mantle of living righteously. Jesus is going to say to us in, a, in a, about a chapter, be holy as your Father in heaven is holy. In other words, be righteous like I am. Live a righteous life. We're to live according to God's standards and not the world's standards. We're to live differently, more righteously than the world around us. We're to live kind of like George Galantis lived. George Galantis was an engineer, an engineer at the Millstone Nuclear Power Plant in Waterford, Connecticut. When he discovered that shortcuts were being taken in disposing of nuclear waste, Galantis, being a Christian, could not live with this knowledge. The company was saving money, but, but he was up at night thinking about at what expense are they saving this money. So began the long, slow journey of him bringing this to light. Over the course of two years, he, confronted, he was confronted by his co-workers in the hallways and in the office. Some called him a fool. Others said he was a troublemaker, even a traitor. He was snubbed. He was subtly intimidated in his job and harassed for months and months. The Millstone plant was eventually temporarily shut down while they corrected the issues, but not before George Galantis lost his job. He went on to attend Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary in order to become a pastor. As a matter of fact, he was there when I attended there. When you live righteously in an unrighteous world, it's like putting two incompatible chemicals together. Eventually there's going to be some reaction. Eventually there might even be an explosion. But this is the mantle that Jesus left behind for us, brothers and sisters. This is part of the clothing that we wear. Jesus himself told us, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it, that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own, he said. As it is, you do not belong to the world. But I have chosen you out of the world. Did you hear that? Did you pick up on that? He's telling us that he has, he has placed us in a new kingdom. And Jesus goes on to say, that is why the world hates you. 
Remember the words I spoke to you. No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Jesus leaves each Christian this mantle to pick up. And it is a mantle that we are called to pick up and wear again and again in Scripture. Galatians 3.27 says, For all of you who are baptized into Christ have been clothed in Christ. You wear Christ. You get up and put on Christ. That's what people see when they see you. And when we willingly wear this mantle, we will be persecuted. And our text tells us here that it will come in three forms. It says, blessed, in verse 11, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. When we're living righteously in an unrighteous world, we have to expect to be, first of all, reviled. We have to expect to be reviled. Different translation says, insulted to your face. These are, these are abusive words that are, that are uttered to your face. Sometimes that's the form of persecution. You're actually insulted to your face. Jesus endured it throughout his ministry. In Mark 3, the Pharisees called him the devil, Beelzebub, to his face. In Matthew 27, we have that whole scene where the, the, the centurions are mocking Jesus and who he is to his very face. And as Jesus hung on the cross, they even put an insulting sign above his head. Do you remember that? Here is your king of the Jews, and underneath it, a bloodied, dying man. And then think of when Jesus was on the cross, what the people said to him. They insulted him to his face again and again. You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself, they said. He saved others, let him save himself if he is the Christ, they said. Come down off the cross and we'll believe they mocked. And when we pick up Jesus' mantle, when we clothe ourselves in Christ, we can expect to weather those same kind of utterances from time to time. Much more commonly, though, people will not utter them to our face. They'll, they'll utter them behind our back. That's what... He tells us here there are utter false accusations behind your back. Again, this is Jesus' mantle. This is what Jesus endured. Do you remember that time when he was talking about the Pharisees, talking about him behind his back? He said, For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they said, He has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look at him. He's a drunkard and a glutton, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. All he's doing is bringing out into the open what they're saying behind his back. Slander is probably one of the most common forms of persecution in the United States. That's probably the most common. I remember a few years ago, 
after the, the Gay Marriage um, Act was put into law, our, ch- our church kind of took a stand, took a theological stand against that. It wasn't overt. It wasn't something that we stood in town and with, with signs or anything like that. We did some theological teaching here in the church. We, we bought some resources for our library for people to read. We, did, we talked about how homosexuality is a sin that needs to be repented and confessed of, just like other sin, and can be forgiven. I even had a few conversations, a few conversations with people in town that I tried to be gracious in, tr- in my truth-telling. A year or two after that, I remember running into a man right outside of our church. He was walking and I was walking out. And as a man that I had a mild acquaintance with, and he kind of flagged me down and I went over and, and we talked for a little bit. And then he, I noticed he was acting a little sheepish towards me. And he, he finally asked if he could ask me a question. And I said, sure, go ahead. And he said that he had heard that our church had thrown a homosexual out of our worship service. And he asked me if that was true. And I said, of course not. Of course not. If a, if a homosexual were to worship here, he's, he's free to worship with us. This, of course, and that was what we were accused of behind our backs. This church was accused of that behind our backs. And it's probably still there in the community in some way, shape, or form. But you know what? That's just part and parcel of the mantle that we wear as a Christian community. The mantle we wear as a Christ follower. We will be slandered. We will be talked about behind our backs. And lastly, we can expect physical persecution as well. That's what it says here. We're not only going to be reviled and be uttered falsely behind our backs, but we will be, you will be persecuted right there in the middle. It's so rare in this country, we don't think too much of physical persecution. We just don't think too much of it. But over the last 2,000 years, 75 million brothers and sisters have lost their lives in the name of Christ. 75 million. 45 million of those in the 20th century alone. The bloodiest century for our brothers and sisters by far. Although this is the ultimate form of physical persecution, there are milder forms of physical persecution that we will endure. When Aristides the Just was banished from Athens, the 4th century before Christ, a stranger was asked why his citizenship was taken away from him. You know what they said? He answered, because they were tired of his always being just. They were tired of his always being just. You see, when you live righteously in an unrighteous world, you might lose your job like George Galantis. You might. You might be ostracized from a friend group because of your righteous lifestyle. That might happen to you. You might receive a lower grade on a paper for standing on the side of righteousness. That could happen. Or you might be asked not, you might not be asked out on a date. 
R.C. Sproul once had a student with a 4.0 grade average. She was brilliant, he said. And her tests, her high marks on her tests always broke the class curve. And as she broke the curve, he noticed that the rest of the students did not applaud her for her high grades. In fact, they didn't like it at all and they tended to scorn her. In the second semester of that year, she unexpectedly failed an exam. And R.C. Sproul went to her and he confronted her and he said, I think that you deliberately tanked that exam. She began to cry and she admitted she had done so just because none of the men wanted to date her because they thought she was too smart. In her way, Sproul writes, that woman had suffered for doing what was right. These, as well as other forms of persecution, all occur because we are acting like our Lord, righteously. And as R.C. Sproul wrote, righteous behavior provokes persecution because the unrighteous in this world cannot stand to behold righteousness. Isn't that exactly why they couldn't stand Jesus Christ? And they couldn't stand him so much that they got rid of him. But there is a governor embedded here in this beatitude that we have to confront. Yes, we will be persecuted. But but did you notice the governor here? Blessed are you who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Those three words are really important. In verse 12, he doubles down on this and says it another way. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Again, those three words we have to take note of. Persecution, trials, difficulties in this life come because you stand on the side of Christ. Absolutely. But not all difficulties in life can be laid at Jesus' feet. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote, This verse does not say, Blessed are those who are persecuted because they are objectionable. It does not say, Blessed are those who are having a hard time in their Christian life because they are difficult. It does not say blessed are those who are persecuted because they are seriously lacking in wisdom and are really foolish and unwise in how they share their testimony. He goes on to conclude, so often one has known Christian people who are suffering mild persecution entirely because of their own folly. And I think that's the warning here. That's the governor here that Jesus is putting on their persecution. We cannot put all of our difficulties on the umbrella of this beatitude. Some persecutions are self-inflicted. A 31-year-old Instagrammer, Olesa Stupincia, died last week. I don't know if you read this article. She died last week after slipping on some grass and fell 115 feet down a cliff to her death in Turkey. You see, she and a friend were walking past a scenic cliff with a waterfall in the background, and she wanted to get a picture of herself in front of that waterfall to send out. So what did she do? She climbed over a safety fence in order to get out there and slipped and fell. 
Sometimes we, in the name of Christ, climb over fences into danger that we never had to climb over. Never had to climb over. And we call it persecution when we climb over that fence that Christ doesn't call us to climb over and we get into trouble. And sometimes we've been in difficult or difficult or objectionable in some way and we call it persecution. Sometimes we do something not called for by Christ and we get persecuted or, we, or life gets difficult and we lay it at the feet of Jesus. You might have gotten a bad grade on that paper because it was poorly written. Not because of its pro-life stance. You might have lost your job not because you're a Christian, but because you were performing poorly. We must be wise in what fences we choose to climb over, brothers and sisters. We must be wise in what fences we choose to, to climb over. And we are at one of those fences right here, brothers and sisters, with gathering. What is the wise thing to do here? Are we called to climb over that fence and gather, even though the, the governor has said not to? We have to be wise. The elders are going to be meeting on Tuesday to seek God's guidance on this. Is this a fence we climb over? Is this a fence that we climb over and we cause trouble for ourselves that we can't lay at the feet of Jesus? I don't know the answer to that right now, brothers and sisters. I really don't. And I pray that you will you'll pray with us to give us wisdom on how to do this well. Because I know there are some, some churches in Maine that are starting to gather. And I know that you're hearing about this. But is this a fence that we are to climb over in the name of Christ? I don't know. But when Christ does call us to climb over that fence, there will be persecution. And when that happens, Jesus actually in here gives us three encouragements when that persecution happens. The first one is take that difficulty as affirmation that you are a citizen of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You are a kingdom dweller when that is happening in your life. Take it as encouragement. Persecution for the right reason should fill you with assurance. It confirms you're part of his kingdom. It confirms you have been transported to a new country. And this should give you great joy. I think that's what Paul is, is meaning when he's writing to, to the Colossian church in the first chapter, 24th verse, when he says, Now I rejoice in what was suffered for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regards to Christ's afflictions. There's great joy that Paul is experiencing because of the persecution that he has suffered. Secondly, when you're persecuted, realize that you're in exceptional com company. 
You're in exceptional company. The end of verse 12 says, so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Old Testament prophets, do you know what they did? God sent them to stand on a street corner and tell the people of Israel about their spiritual drift. That's what a prophet did. And they were thrown into stocks and wells like Jeremiah for doing it. They were shunned like Ezekiel for doing it. They were run out of town like Elijah for doing it. Stoned like Paul for doing it. They were killed like John the Baptist for doing it. And all the apostles and our dear Lord Jesus Christ. We're told in Scripture that Jesus was a man of sorrows and he was acquainted with grief. Just think of Jesus' life for a moment, brothers and sisters. Think of his life. Jesus was rejected by his own family. He endured the shame of his hometown community that gossiped about him, about being illegitimate. As a matter of fact, when he went home, they, they actually tried to kill him by throwing him off a cliff. He was hated by the religious leaders of the day. He was betrayed by most of his friends. He was falsely accused by the government that he lived under. He was beaten and tortured to death. And he willingly endured all of that for you and me. That's what scripture tells us. He willingly went through all of that. 33 years of his life that were difficult, that were forms of persecution, his whole life up until giving the ultimate persecution, his death. He did that all for you and me. And that is what we call the evangel. That is what we call good news. That is what we call the gospel. You see, he willingly lived a righteous life and was persecuted for it so that he could take his righteous life, his righteousness, and impute it to you and me. Give it to you and me. If we trust in Jesus, that's what happens. That's one of the transactions that happens. His righteousness is imputed to your account. He willingly lived under the law so that we would be set free from that obligation. He willingly picked up the mantle of our sin so that we could have the mantle of his righteousness. He willingly took the punishment of death for us so that by our trusting in what Christ did, we might see life. We will live in eternity forever. And he rose from the dead proving that what he did and said was all true. John 3.17 says, God did not send Christ into the world to condemn the world, but to save it. That's the good news, brothers and sisters. Third encouragement that Jesus gives us here when we are persecuted is, your reward in heaven is great. That's what it says. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. Again, we're not told a lot about what that reward is going to be. But one thing we can say, it's not here and now. Our reward is not here and now. It's in the future. Which brings us to our concluding challenge of today. 
the challenge of waiting. It is told to us that our suffering and persecution is rewarded not here, but in heaven, in the future. And that's, that's pretty consistent with what the Beatitudes are saying, too. If you pick up your Bibles and, and just glance at the Beatitudes again, you'll notice that, that six of them are in the future tense. It says that they, the blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Again and again, they shall be. As a matter of fact, the Beatitudes are bracketed by two present tenses, first and eighth, and six future tenses. By mixing the present and future tenses in the Beatitude, Jesus is telling us something important about being a kingdom dweller. The kingdom is a reality now, he's saying, but it's not fully realized yet. You're part of the real kingdom now, but it has not fully come. And as a matter of fact, we're very much in the situation that Grace Ritter and Warren Young are experiencing right now. This is a young couple in our, in our congregation who are engaged to be married. Warren promised to marry Grace. He's given her a ring to show his commitment, his intention, and the wedding date has been set for October. They know they'll be wed. They're planning on it. They're excited about it. But they're not married yet. They must wait for the wedding ceremony. They must wait for the wedding consummation. They are, if you will, living in this already, but not yet. This middle ground. Their marriage is a fait accompli, a certainty, but they must wait for the consummation. And that is, that's life for the Christian, isn't it? The new kingdom has been announced. The engagement has happened, if you will, with its new creed, repent, with its new call, follow me, with its new king, Jesus, with its new citizenry, you and me. The kingdom has indeed come, but not Fully yet. That's why Jesus goes on to describe the kingdom in parables like, like it's like a mustard seed that, that is very small, the smallest seed, in fact, but it grows into the largest plant. And he likens the kingdom of God in another way, like, like yeast that, that is so small and you put a little bit of it in the dough, but it, but it permeates the whole thing. And here in the Beatitudes, Jesus is saying a very similar thing. We mourn over our sin now, and, and now we're partly comforted. But we will be comforted fully later. We're meek and claim nothing for ourselves now, but one day we'll inherit everything, he says. We're desperate to please our God now, but one day we'll actually be able to do that completely. We cannot see God now, but one day we will see him face to face. And that waiting is hard. And I don't know about you, but I can't wait for faith to become sight. 
I can't wait for faith to become sight. And that is the challenge. That is the hardness of waiting. It can be frustrating and maddening and annoying. Some people approach waiting like like waiting in a grocery line. It's annoying. Some people approach waiting like like they're, they're sitting in the DMV with that number. The number on the board says two and you are holding 54. But here, Jesus tells us a different way to wait. Did you see it? Verse 12, rejoice and be glad. Rejoice and be glad. That is how we are to wait, brothers and sisters. Full of hope and joy and excitement and certitude. During the 1960s, the Toronto Maple Leaf hockey team was a dynasty. Under new ownership, Toronto won four Stanley Cups in a six-year span between 1962 and 1967. However, after a two-year drought in 1967, they were so sure that they were going to win the Stanley Cup that they began planning the victory parade during training camp. And they won that year. That is how we should wait. With joy and certitude and hope, like Warren and Grace waiting for their wedding, it should be full of joy and rejoicing and planning. Like a bride waiting for her bridegroom, we wait excitedly for thy kingdom come for thy will to be done on this earth as it is in heaven. Please pray with me. Father God, I thank you. I thank you that we can wait like that, that you are coming, that you will gather your sheep, that you will gather your children one day. Help us, Lord, to wait well with joy and hope and certitude. Help us to plan for it. And when persecution does come on account of you, because of your name, give us the courage and the fortitude to weather it well, to wear your mantle well. In Jesus' name, amen.